pilots as patients. You're the flight surgeon. You're listening to Reach MD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jan Stepanek. Dr. Stepanek is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of the Aerospace Medicine Program at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. His research interests include aerospace physiology and altitude-related clinical conditions. Dr. Stepanek comes to us today from Scottsdale, Arizona, and we're going to be talking about pilots as patients. Jan, thanks for uh, being with us today. We, we appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Gary. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, how one gets into this rather esoteric field of aviation medicine. Uh, you, uh, I understand, have come from an internal medicine background, but now you're uh, kind of in a not well-known subspecialty. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got there? You know, I hail originally from Switzerland, and there is no such thing as aerospace medicine as a specialty in Switzerland. But the fact that in the military in Switzerland, I had a lot to do with altitude-related disorders, and it piqued my interest, and as a result, some of my publications set me really up for becoming acquainted with the specialty when I was about to finish my internal medicine residency training at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. I was approached if I were not uh, interested in pursuing further training sponsored by the clinic uh, in order to be able to become a specialist in aerospace medicine. And given the perfect match of my interest in the specialty, it was a resounding yes, and here we are years later. And the rest is history, huh? Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the system in this country for um, examining pilots and how that's set up with the FAA. If you want to be a pilot in this country, anything from a private pilot to commercial pilot, you have to interact with the uh, FAA and their medical system. Could you tell us just kind of a brief overview how that works? I'll be happy to, Gary. The FAA has a cadre of aviation medical examiners. And what that means, it's basically a set of physicians that have had special training at Oklahoma City where the Aerospace Medical Certification Division and the um, Civil Aerospace Medical Institute is that administers the medical certification of pilots. Now, this ability to see pilots is a privilege. So it's basically a privilege granted by the FAA to the aviation medical examiner. And when you see a pilot in the capacity of an aviation medical examiner, you're basically the equivalent of the extended arm of the government. It allows the FAA to have the opportunity for the pilots to see examiners in multiple locations and offer that far-reaching geographic dispersion that they would otherwise have a hard time achieving if they were to try to do it with their own resources. And um, the standards with which they work, what's, uh, what's the general intent of examining a pilot for the FAA? That's a very good question, and there's really two things to this. One is the importance of the sensorium. So the standards are primarily formulated to make sure that the pilot is able to hear well, that the pilot is able to see well, all the things that are of key importance to the operation and safe operation of an aircraft. The second thing that is important is making sure that the pilot does not have a condition that could lead to sudden incapacitation, strokes, uh, epilepsy, you know, things that would be coronary artery disease with potential for um, arrhythmias, those would be all things that would be red flags and would uh, preclude the issuance of a regular medical certificate. The aviation medical examiners, uh, the AMEs who do this, they're focused on that 
those kinds of issues. Now, I know that in your life, you are an AME, and as well, you also see patients in a different context. You see them in uh, like an executive health physical exam context. Tell us a little bit about the difference or the similarities between those two hats that, that you wear. That's a very important one. You know, the importance is twofold. One, you cannot be judge and advocate at the same time. So the way that we practice here is we make sure that whenever we have a patient that is being seen for a general medical examination, we make sure that the patient's uh, physician who is going to be performing the medical evaluation for the FAA is another physician, just so you have these two functions separated. Again, because one is basically being the advocate for the patient and the other one is being the extended arm of the government in that very function. The important distinction here is medical care versus certification for flight. And oftentimes I'm afraid pilots misperceive their FAA medical evaluations to be equivalent to good medical care. And many AMEs, you know, sometimes do more than what the FAA requires in order to cover some of these things because they may be at the same time the primary care physician for this pilot. But oftentimes the saddest stories that I see in my practice is when we have patients who are, let's say, class one pilots who happen to have a medical that they need to uh, renew every six months. They see an AME every six months, and they have the misperception that they're with that up to date. And because they see a physician every six months, uh, if there were to be anything that would be needed otherwise, they would have been probably told. So I try to make sure whenever I see a pilot is that I tell them, your FAA medical is not the equivalent of a general medical exam because the FAA does not mandate colonoscopies. It does not mandate um, prostate evaluations or other things that would be part of uh, good old-fashioned internal medicine and preventive care. Can an AME do both? Or, and if so, does he have to do it at like separate occasions? Can he do, do they tend to do them at the same time? Uh, Really, there's no direction from the FAA as to they're not dictating to the physicians how they ought to practice. The reason why we separate it is just because of it being a cleaner division between these two very different functions, you know, without having to sort of carry over and overlap too much. It makes it easier because that way, if there's something needed, you know, you have basically two physicians that can work together mm -hmm. in order to get that, and even the reporting is easier that way. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jan Stepanek. We're talking about pilots as patients. You're the flight surgeon. So we've been talking about the FAA's system and how it works with aviation medical examiners. Let's talk about docs who are not AMEs, who do not work on behalf of the FAA. But uh, I suspect many of us in private practice have patients who uh, fly, probably not commercially, but possibly, or even as private pilots. If you were talking to non-AME docs out there, what kinds of things would you ask them to be aware of with respect to their uh, patient's ability to fly airplanes? Oftentimes, what, as I mentioned before, what the FAA is most concerned about is the risk for sudden incapacitation. And while we may perceive the ability to fly from just a physical and medical perspective to be okay, and I see that sometimes when I review cases and, you know, we get opinions from people saying, well, from my perspective, this patient can fly. That may be true from a medical viewpoint, but the FAA looks at this with their own processes and procedures 
for instance, if you were to have a class 1 pilot and you just diagnosed subclinical coronary artery disease, maybe some mild abnormality on a stress test, or even something as trivial as hypertension. The FAA actually has done a very nice job with getting a lot of information into the electronic realm. And if you go to www.faa.gov and you click on the medical certification tab, there's a lot of question and answers that deal with different conditions. And all of these are relatively algorithmic. So if there is a new diagnosis, it's important that the physician as well as the pilot are aware of those. And the most common one would probably be coronary artery disease, hypertension, and many of these can be easily remedied by providing the data that are present on the website. That doesn't mean that the physician who's seeing the patient can issue or can do anything because if you're not an AME, you don't have that authority. But you can provide the information such that when the patient then goes and visits with the aviation medical examiner, that information can be submitted and there is not going to be any lapse in certification or any extended inability to fly based on medical reasons. Here's something that I suspect is a common issue uh, or maybe should be more common issue. That is of medications. A lot of times docs will say, yeah, you can take that uh, and you can take that and drive. You can take that and fly. Any advice for uh, our non-AME friends out there and medications and pilots? That is an issue that comes up over and over in practice. There is no official quote-unquote FAA-approved list. In general, things that can impair central nervous system functioning or judgment in direct or indirect ways. So if you have centrally active substances, things like if you're prescribing Wellbutrin for someone, you know, for the purposes of, let's say, smoking cessation, you will impair and influence, by definition, that's the way the medication works, you're going to influence their central nervous system function, and as such, it would not be compatible with flying when people are on medications like that. Um, indirect effects would be, for instance, a new antihypertensive medication and people are experiencing uh, hypotension or centrally acting agents. You know, the FAA has no problem with ACE inhibitors or diuretics, ARBs, but centrally acting agents, again, you know, the notion there is centrally acting. Anything that is centrally acting, even antihistamines, you know, are going to be a problem. A rule of thumb is usually, and given the fact that there is no official list and given the fact that there is no codified um, listed federal aviation regulation that describes when you can actually say, yes, you're likely to be able to fly with this, it's somewhat of a dicey thing. But usually the FAA tends to look at medicines as permissible, you know, if they're not having central nervous system effects or other untowards effect on flight and if they've been FDA approved for at least one year. You mentioned earlier the uh, FAA.gov uh, medical website. Uh, is that likely to answer some of these questions? It probably will, but if there is any specific question that a pilot has as to his or her ability to exercise his or her privileges to fly on medicines, I recommend that they contact their aviation medical examiner or conceivably even call Oklahoma City to find out if they're okay with this. What about if you're a non-AME and you think your patient should not be flying, but you're pretty sure they are flying? Um, I know this kind of puts you on the spot a little bit here, Jan, but any advice to the non-AME out there? Um, what, what, what should he do in such a situation? The law is actually fairly 
clear on this. Federal Aviation Regulation 61.53 states that uh, in case of any medical deficiency, the pilot is to not exercise the privileges of his medical certificate and fly and report the condition to his AME and to the FAA. So in the end, you know, what one can do is highlight this very thing to the pilot, basically bring the attention back that it's their reporting requirement. Okay, well, that is, uh, that is good advice for a, a rather tricky situation. Jan, this has been a, a neat discussion, putting into perspective a lot of the issues that I know you find near and dear to your heart, and I, I want to thank you for being our guest. Uh, my thanks to Dr. Jan Stepanek. We've been talking about pilots who are patients. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM157. Thanks for listening.